three, two, one, and hey, it's Cam. Welcome back to another episode of This Might Be Helpful, and I sincerely hope that it is. Today, I am joined by my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Cody Peterson. Cody, thank you so much for being here. You were, I believe, the second guest I ever had on a podcast back on the Age of Info podcast. I'm not sure how many years ago that was, but more than several. At least four. Four, four years. Four years. And so this reunion has been four years in the making. You've taught me so much about the incredible complex herbal medicine that is cannabis and its relationship to the human endocannabinoid system and all of the beautiful art that goes on within our bodies. So thank you and welcome. Please take the stage. Hey, I had to copy you. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so it's so great to be here, Cam. And it's good to see you. I guess it's probably closer to three and a half years since we last spoke uh, on air. Although I think we tried a second podcast in there that, that didn't uh, record quite well, but I'm really happy to be here. I want to just tell you before we get into me or, or cannabis, even the work you're doing is really great. This is a really a challenging world that we live in, particularly in the age of the internet. And uh, I think that the the help you're trying to offer people is, is just really tangible, down to earth and, and um, super digestible. So thank you, Cam. Mm, thank you for those words of affirmation. A little bit of philosophy blended in there too. And I like that, right? You get, you get me thinking and I appreciate that. Uh, well, did, same here. And that's, that's what this is all about, right? Like we're trying to, deepen the context. And that is what we do on these conversations. That is what we do through our teachings is just to deepen the context. And it's never, this is the way I'm right. They're wrong. It's how can we contribute to our overall context mm -hmm. so that we may live more fulfilling lives. Exactly. Because we only get one shot at this and, and we can drudge through the world unhappy or, or even unaware of our unhappiness or what we're doing to ourselves to create it. But I think, I think the much more enlightened life is one where, where we're present and, and making note of what makes us happy and what doesn't and what fulfills us and what doesn't. Mm, and it's such an active participation, you know, an active role in that process that that's an interesting point about not even being aware of our unhappiness because these melancholic states are so kind of normalized that people really don't know that there are other options, other ways to feel, other ways to live. And it begins with the questions. And so ideally, you know, what we're doing here, it's not to tell anybody anything, but to offer prompts that lead to self-inquiry and questioning, because it is through the questions that we begin to um, remember and yeah, assume agency. You inspire questions. I think that's that's what I find is I'm, you're talking. And I'm like, oh wow, I hadn't thought about that. And and I think that a lot of the times, especially as the algorithm feeds us, um, that that we're not really questioning as much as we are consuming. So I love it. Uh, but you know, enough enough tooting your horn. Yeah, yeah, enough of that, dude. Um, I can only handle so much. I might float <laughs> away. <laughs> but that right there is how I want to dive in. Um, questioning what we are consuming in relation to cannabis. Mm. I mean, in relation to everything, but let's start with cannabis. Well, I, I think that 
for a long time, you know, let's look historically, we didn't know what was in cannabis. In fact, we didn't discover the active ingredient in cannabis until the 1960s. Before that, humans consumed cannabis for 10,000 plus years, probably 20,000 or more. And uh, we didn't know what was in it. We just knew that it did things. It brought us closer to to God or closer to um, the afterlife. Uh, in fact, one of the earliest uses of, of cannabis that we know about was um, b- before Christ sometime. Um, and it was the, the Scythians. And this was a, a practice of taking the cannabis buds and they were seeded at that time, of course, but taking the dried buds and throwing it onto um, into a crucible of, of hot, embers and then covering your your head with a blanket over that that crucible so essentially creating a bowl with embers from a fire and and big old cannabis buds but what's interesting is this this was happening across um sort of central asia kazakhstan over to to uh western or rather eastern europe and so in eastern europe they would they would lose their friend in battle or and then as part of the ritual of saying goodbye they would do this um cannabis burning ritual where they throw the blanket over their head and have one more one more blaze with their buddy um so cannabis has always brought us out of our current state and taken us somewhere else um and and perhaps it's it's the ability to bring us so many different places that makes it such a mysterious plant Mm, and when it comes to how cannabis may bring us to these different places Coming back to that question of why am I using this? Where do I intend to go? Because I think that clarifying an intention when it comes to the medicine is how we bringing in some aspect of ritualism and a way to almost harmonize subconscious activity, because this is a plant that really works with that subconscious and it brings us almost into those deep mysterious, imaginative, imaginative realms. And hopefully we can come out of those realms with some kind of glimpse or insight into a, a deeper understanding of ourselves. The question of why am I using this? What do I intend with this plant? How does that? Well, it's, it's incredibly important with, with any, uh, particularly plant medicine, because the complexity here is, is very deep. But pharmaceutical is one thing. Cannabis is many things. Sure, it might be primarily THC, but it's also THCA and all these other molecules, and they can have varied effects. And and if you are just consuming, right, this, like we said, mindlessly consuming, you really don't, you don't get a whole lot of, uh, let's say, control on where that takes you. But if we're mindfully consuming, if we're integrating other mindfulness techniques, we're integrating exercise, yoga, socialization, whatever it might be, all of a sudden we can steer the ship a little bit better um, and we can start to direct where that sort of energy is is going during our experience. So mindfulness set and setting, even though it's frequently discussed as a psychedelic um, sort of preparation, is absolutely part of the, the cannabis experience, particularly THC. Mm. Now, personally, I've also noticed... I mean, like with anything, if you express gratitude towards it, you know, like I can have a glass of water and it could just be a glass of water. But if I thank that glass of water before I consume it, it revitalizes me in a totally different way. And same thing goes with, with cannabis. Say thank you for this medicine. Thank you for providing me this, this opportunity, this space and, uh, an option to 
get to know myself in a new way. And it kind of brings this freshness into the experience. And I think that helps to uh, almost disrupt the monotony and the complacency that comes with easy access as well. Like, cause that just, we get desensitized to what it is and it just becomes smoking weed or water cam you, you like we you should be thankful for that water for that that whole history that we talked about earlier humans did not have access to clean potable water this was always a struggle to go and and find water that that you knew you could drink and not get sick and we take this for granted in the same way that we take for granted that we can buy a, like here in the states anyway like uh, as much weed as we want so you don't even have to consume sparingly or consume mindfully because the the commercialization of this product has made it so that we don't have to but if you think back to a time where you had to cultivate this herb which was only 50 years ago in this country maybe maybe 100 uh, otherwise you couldn't get your hands on it that's a whole different experience you wouldn't be wasteful with your herb if you had had to trim it and had to to grow it water it nurture it prevent pests from getting onto it and and the same thing is we wouldn't be wasteful with our water if it was as expensive as it probably is to treat and, and, and shuttle into our homes. But instead we're subsidized by modern technology and modern culture to have access to this resource. And as such, it is important to bring what you're saying up it, to recenter yourself. Wow. I am thankful for this water. It's life sustaining. And it came to my house, my, came right to me. Wow. And it's safe. Yes. Thank you for this reminder as well um because it is it's so easy to forget you know forget our lineage our ancestors all of the long continuation of life that led to this moment where i can access water without any effort whatsoever and i thank you to everybody that allowed this to be i am grateful uh and thirsty and thankful <laughs> that I have something to quench that thirst. <laughs> now you're, yeah. it, it goes deep. So sorry, Cam, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like it, it goes beyond that. It's even to food, right? Like it's all these, my, 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 even our housing, although that is a much bigger struggle in modernity, you know, we're really lucky to have access uh, to refrigeration and, and cellular telephones and all the things that make life easy historically have not been here uh and so it's insane that we're less thankful now despite having all of these amazing gifts from essentially our ancestors although our modern ancestors i think we're desensitized um on some pretty fundamental levels right now with all of this and desensitized to our medicine desensitized to stimuli um and uh dopamine dopamine right like these just the absolute abundance in every way that that abundance it causes almost a scarcity of peace in the mind a scarcity of contentment and satisfaction because these senses are never satisfied unless we really train the mind to be able to respond appropriately in a beneficial way to whatever the senses are demanding and that is a that's a real practice to be able to do that when it comes to anything really to be able to 
intervene when there is an urge and then consciously decide where it is you will go from here. And really we're getting to mindfulness, which is a practice I've had intermittently uh, throughout my life. But, but I think, I think that's the reason mindfulness has been such a, such a buoy to people who are struggling in modernity here is like, this is why yoga has resurged in, in the West uh, because we're losing track of all that. And, and people recognize it; they feel it inside of them. Um, even if they can't fully put their, put their thumb on it. And I think that mindfulness helps bring us back to that, that plane where we're thinking about gratitude, where we're thinking about our neighbor um, those who came before us, our ancestors, all of those things. And plant medicine often helps integrate all of this, but it's not the only way. Um, simple mindfulness can go a long way to, to improve all of this as well. Yeah. And I do want to touch on our relationship with, with plant medicines, particularly cannabis, because there are some practices that concern me, um, and particularly in you know, Australia right now, where we, I think, have built a really good industry. There are people that are just practitioners that are devoted to doing it right. Um, but it's not everybody, right? Like, it's, it's never going to be everybody that does that. And we also have a lot of prescribing practices that are kind of out of control and, in my opinion, irresponsible. Like... Cannabis prescribing or opioid prescribing? Because I'm pretty familiar with <laughs> with the latter. Um, well, cannabis prescribing, because that's the domain that I am in. But it's following some concerning trends that would be related to opioid prescribing in the sense that as tolerance increases, then the daily dose is going up and up and up. And there's no real emphasis on intervening and reestablishing a healthy relationship with this plant. You know, if you're using a hundred grams a month, is it working? Hmm. Uh, I, I think there's an argument to be made on both sides, depending on what we're treating for that. But I know that the argument exists and can be made that, that it could work better. That if instead of just leaning into the plant and burning it all day, that if we found a way to integrate other techniques, whether that's exercise, yoga, mindfulness, meditation, even things like electroacupuncture um, and other practices that have been shown to modulate our endocannabinoid system, uh, dietary changes, probiotics, all of those things are tools to augment the plant medicine. But instead, in sort of this, this culture that we already alluded to, we just opt for consumption. Like, I need to consume more. I need to move on to the next strain or the next, you know, consumption method, right? So, I went from joints to bowls to keef-covered pre-rolls, and then I'm, now I'm on, on concentrates. We just sort of keep building instead of diversifying, looking around on how else we can support these efforts. Mm. I want to touch on electroacupuncture for the endocannabinoid system. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Please tell me. So there's an interesting study that, that was done. So uh, acupuncture, we're familiar, right? We're, we're trying to work on the chi. We're putting in these little needles and, and seeing if we can connect these energy circles. Uh, electroacupuncture is essentially that plus a, a TEMS unit. So this, uh, electro uh, pulses. So the, the devices you'd, you'd stick on you at the chiropractor or whatever, and they cause the muscle twitching. 
so that you combine acupuncture with with this um, electrostimulation. And interestingly, we see tremendous changes in the endocannabinoid system availability of cannabinoid receptors after this sort of stimulation. So there's a lot of speculation that patients who are responding extremely well to electroacupuncture are actually gaining this benefit uh, through the ECS. And if we can turn up the availability of cannabinoid receptors with electroacupuncture, and then we introduce cannabinoids, we can, we can achieve the same effect at a lower dose. So, so essentially supporting the system with non-cannabis can go a long way to reduce our need for the herb. Wow, this is incredible. So when we are seeing a greater uh, availability of these cannabinoid receptors in localized areas. Yeah, in particular with the electrostimulation, yeah, we, we, we looked at, at the, um, the local tissues and there's some pretty limited data on this one or two, but, but it's, it's thought that this is one of the techniques we can now use to support the endocannabinoid system or even train it, right? Make it stronger. So my mind goes to uh, endometriosis. I, there's a tremendous need for treatments for endometriosis. There's currently no good therapy. And we know that the endocannabinoid system is dysregulated in endometriosis. There's multiple studies that have looked at this and seen uh, altered levels of endocannabinoids, but also changes in uh, cannabinoid receptor availability. So there's a good reason to think that. And then there's also a multitude of women reporting benefits from either THC, CBD, or, or the likes um, to, to manage their endometriosis. Pretty wild. It is, it is wild and really exciting, though, to see where we are going with all of these therapies because, you know, cannabis is this Hail Mary for people experiencing treatment-resistant conditions. And quite often, the more complex the conditions, the more comorbidities there are, the more effective that medicine is because of that network effect of cannabis and the omnipresence of the ECS throughout the body. Still, though, we're, 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 there's just so much suffering and so much pain going on. And endometriosis in particular, I think, is such, such a high occurrence right now within society mm -hmm. I, I speak to so many people that experience this and there's you know especially in australia where we're, we're still not allowed to drive with any thc in our system and so people that experience these really debilitating conditions they might get relief from particularly thc based medications but they're sacrificing their ability to engage with community and society and work and so they have to choose between being in pain or providing yeah and we also know that engaging with community is going to support your endocannabinoid system and and by hindering people from doing that and by handicapping the system they're going to even need to consume more cannabis and and begin to develop tolerance even more so um and and instead of getting them out and engaging in so social uh circles and reducing their need and reducing their pain improving their happiness we're doing the opposite and these sort of prohibitory laws have done this for a long time stoners have been put into a corner for a hundred years and, be, and basically been uh anti-socialized right oh you can't you can't consume that in public what sort of craziness is that we can't we can't burn this plant in public uh but we can burn totally fine in public just stand 50 feet away from the door and you are good to go <laughs> insane
Yeah, and it's yeah the sensitivities of of people that I've been taught fear. You know, it's it's because there is this um, this ingrained fear that individuals have that causes that resistance, and it is up to us to continue analyzing whatever it is that we are resistant to, whatever it is that triggers us, because through that is the gateway to growth and expansion as an individual and coming into contact with these narratives that have been upheld that have no actual basis or foundation in a truth other than that they have been perpetuated for a long time and associated with big inflammatory emotions and those big inflammatory emotions the nerves that fire together wire together so there is a almost a, a physical response to to these things and we're seeing it you know where we are um it's it's a big thing to open a dispensary where we are because people don't even know that it's legal still. Wow. And so it's really like we're on this kind of leading edge up here and there's so much education to be done. And, you know, how do we deliver that education? How do we provide a safe space for people to conduct their own experiments as well? Because this is a plant that we don't have standardized doses. We don't have, these really clear parameters that we use, we can have standardized approaches to how we engage with this medicine, but ultimately it is up to the individual to become a citizen scientist and engage in their own exploration of this medicine and how it relates to their health and well-being overall. So tell me about how we could guide people through education that pairs it with this very sensory and somatic experience. You know, that's really interesting. And I, I do agree. We have a, we have a tremendous need. We have a lot of individuals who have no idea how to start this process and individuals who don't even know what the difference between CBD and THC are. So there is a tremendous need for education. We can agree. And I think we've known this together for a while, at least for the last three and a half years. <laughs> uh, but the first thing that I say anytime someone comes to me, because usually it's something when someone, a new patient comes to you, and I'm sure you've experienced this too. It's, it's one of two things. I'm dealing with X and it's sort of like the big disease, cancer, right? And, and I'm looking for the strain. I'm looking for what variety I should consume, right? But that's a huge jump because you're dealing with cancer. Okay, there's a million types of cancer. Okay, and then, and then what is it that in your cancer that's bothering you that you then want to leverage cannabinoids for? Once we distill it down to that, what is your chief complaint? It's a very common practice in medicine. Okay, now I can shift you over to which therapeutic should I use? So it, we do this again in medicine, but if you tell me that you're having trouble doing your activities of daily living starting from the minute that you wake up and um you continue to um you don't want to get high you have you got a lot of responsibilities you you have a lot going on i'm not going to recommend thc right even though thc might help with that condition thc has a tendency to inhibit us especially if we use it in the morning and blah 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 so knowing your patient's goals is the number one um the only way to customize this medicine and and to make that even more complicated you know you mentioned oh it's individualized we don't have standard dosing forget about standard dosing we can standardize a dose we know how much a milligram of thc is the problem is is you're not going to respond to that milligram the same as i am and, and not the same as sally or the the same as sam so we have all of these nuanced approaches which is why we need the patient the consumer to identify why am i consuming this plant 
and then to assess, did this help what I'm aiming to achieve? Um, and a lot of the times I think that, I think that there's a lot of effort put into finding the perfect solution instead of a lot of effort putting, put into the process of finding what works. And the process of being dynamic with this medicine as well, because your needs are constantly changing who you are, you know, the, the chemistry within you, your, the conditions of your life, they're constantly in this flux. And so this medicine to me, it's something that it almost has kind of an abstract entry, right? Like, cause I think about terpenes and the, the, aromatic profile of this plant and how terpenes are this mood of the medicine, the genre, so to speak, and that your nose knows I can smell a profile and know pretty much immediately whether that is going to work for me or whether it's not really my vibe. Right. Now, and we it has can't... nothing to do with the way I'm going to feel about that, right? Your nose doesn't know me. It only knows you. Mm -hmm. I don't know your nose's memories. <laughs> exactly. Your nose does not know mine. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's really cool how that works. And I think we touched on it briefly in our, our podcast way back when, but the, this, the olfactory senses, the, your ability to smell is, is a direct uh, connection to your hypothalamus, which is your, your emotional memory. And, and it jumps right past what we call the, the higher brain, the cortex and the, the neocortex, all this really high stuff that processes information. It, it bypasses all that. The, the brain goes immediately to the emotional side with smells. And this is why you can smell a smell like poo and be immediately repulsed. You, you don't even have to think, oh, that's just human feces and I'm nowhere near it so that I don't have to be repulsed, right? It's not actually a fear to me. You smell it, you're immediately disgusted. The same way that when you smell, uh, for example, when I smell dill pickles, okay, I, I'm taken back to my grandmother's kitchen. I'm a five-year-old boy. She's harvesting the pickles. I see the, she harvested the garlic herself and I, I have this whole emotional experience with dill pickles. Now, I don't think about all of that I feel it. Isn't that weird? It's like, it's mm -hmm. inside of you. And that's the way the nose works. The nose remembers. Nose remembers. And this to me is a really fundamental aspect of this medicine is that we are engaging with this complex array of aromatic constituents that may elicit these deeply held and long remembered sensations and em emotive aspects that really influence how we respond and how we relate to this plant. And so, you know, that, that feeling of coming across a scent and it triggering some kind of intense nostalgia of a memory that has no visual aspects unless I kind of craft them myself. It is emotive aspects. And that is going to really significantly to me change the variability of how we respond to these plants. And so I, with patients, I like to get them to really get into the sensation of it, get into the, the profile, go deep and let it, let it settle and bring in this aspect of intuition and instinct as well. That's how we form these relationships with the plant. And then knowing that there's this dynamic need throughout the day, and there are going to be different approaches for different times and different types of functionality that we want. Like sometimes, yes, being able to 
hit the sack and, and, and fall asleep is really functional. That is highly utilitarian, but it also means that you're not going to respond the same way to this plant forever. And so being okay with being that citizen scientist again and tapping into your instincts and exploring and determining these profiles that kind of go into this array of tools that you use, but they're not static things. No. And, and we have tools like right now, like you said, terpenes. Okay, great. I can look at the terpene profile and I've got eight just standard terpenes and I can look at that and try to make a connection between how I'm feeling. But the truth is, is you've got eight parts in orbit and it's going to be hard to really make these connections with that data set. The, the real, the reality, excuse me, the reality is, is that terpenes are just a part of the picture too. And the aromatics we're smelling, those volatiles are even more, they're aldehydes and esters and, and other alcohols that are, that are, uh, volatilizing off of this herb and then hitting your nose and then going through your whole complex brain, which, you know, as you've alluded to in this show before is the most complex thing, the complex structure in the, in the universe, that brain is going to process that sensation and give you a feeling. And what that feeling is, is actually rather important. In fact, there was a recent study, I think published in 2021, they went to a, a, a cannabis uh, event, a conference, a competition, um, and they, they measured people's subjective effects, whether they liked the herb and what tried to correlate that to the laboratory data. And what they found was THC concentration uh, was not correlated to any of the, the liking that was reported by the consumers um, and barely even associated with increased impairment. So that's a really intriguing idea is that oh. this isn't just dictated by the the chemistry or the the cannabinoids but the these terpenoids the aromatics are, are altering the way they're making us feel and there's i guess what i'm saying is there's some science to this as well oh yes i mean you know back to that notion of it can be abstract but it becomes more scientific with the involvement of the individual and generating your own kind of data set and getting into the the, the specific variability of your experience THC as an analgesic. Okay. THC is an analgesic without myrcene and with myrcene. Are there any connections there with how myrcene might play a role in THC's potential analgesic effects? Let's start with one at a time. So THC has been shown to have analgesic effects. Um, what's interesting though, is when they've looked at a lot of animal studies is they've actually seen this to be, to be biphasic. And so that a lower doses or, or a low, a medium dose of THC tends to reduce pain. Um, but in, especially the non-tolerant individual, a high dose can actually augment pain. So we see, we see this biphasic effect where this low dose may have this analgesic effect, but we have this, uh, pain enhancing effect at larger doses. Now, keep in mind, this is a little bit different for everybody and the more chronic the stoner, the, the less likely they are to be able to make it all the way up to that, that uh, hyper analgesia phase. So um, this isn't the truth for everyone. I'm not saying that everybody who burns a, a big old blunt is going to have more pain. Uh, but, but this is what we found across numerous um, benchmarks with THC is that we've seen different effects at different doses, but you're right. Generally we do have analgesia. Now let's take that, set that aside. Then we can look at myrcene, which is one of the, the terpenoids found in cannabis, but also the, uh, a terpene very abundant in lemongrass, um, and very abundant, uh, in 
all sorts of different fruits and vegetables. However, I want to point out, not very abundant in mangoes. I know that's what you read on the internet, but I hate to break it to you. They looked at like 50 different mango species and only one of them even had a lot of myrcene. The rest were rich in things like limonene and, and other terpenoids. So setting uh, mangoes aside, because that's not, that's not why we're here. If you look at myrcene uh, and you look at animal models with it, we do see analgesic effects as well. So when we inject it into rodents, we see that. When we apply it topically, to some to some uh, rodents or samples, we see analgesic effects as well, and and in fact we see this across many terpenoids. Linalool is another good example of an analgesic. It's frequently incorporated into topical products that are used for wounds. Uh, so this is not uncommon that that terpenoids have an analgesic or a numbing or stinging effect on the skin. And then if you think about this. Could that harmonize with the effects of THC? The, the answer is, is probably yes. We don't have a lot of great data, but when we do look at the data that we have, we do see this tendency for myrcene uh, dominant strains to be used for uh, their pain relieving uh, qualities. So THC has its own unique effects. Myrcene seems to do that. And then when put together, they seem to synergize. And this is sort of the entourage effect as, as has been proposed in the space. Mm, okay, so THC analgesic. What about THC's potential for emotional modulation as a form of pain relief? So rather than a direct action, um, physiologically, something to do with actually our perception and relationship to that pain and that some of the maybe almost like cognitive distance we can get from our pain helps us to relate to it in a different way and maybe disassociate pain from damage and thus be able to work with pain in a different way? Yeah, I, you're spot on. Um, and this can be beneficial or not. So let's get into that in a second. But so THC is true. When we look at pain scores between uh, THC users and, and non-THC users, and maybe they're both taking opioids, the, the general trend is to see a very marginal reduction in overall pain. But it, it seems like THC is able to take us away from that pain. It's able to distract us from the, the painful condition and allow us to sort of explore other parts of our brain or other parts. So it can sort of break that neural highway of I'm in pain, therefore, you know, I feel sad. Um, and by, by expanding on that, we're able to sort of take the back road, kind of like I explained with psychedelics, and, and sort of avoid that neural highway of pain. There's a lot of reasons that THC can be beneficial for pain, at least four different sites along the spine and in the upper brain. We have places where we can modify the feeling of pain that are, that are part of the endocannabinoid system. So there's a good reason to explain it. But honestly, the distraction aspect of it, distracting from pain or re reframing our pain uh, with THC is really one of the, the secret effects or, or magic effects of it. So I love that you use that example. However, <laughs> that isn't necessarily always good. So here's an example, irritable bowel disease, IBD, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. It's a really debilitating condition. If you have ulcerative colitis, um, 
there's, you know, there's a little bit of surgical treatment we can do to sort of cure you. But if you have Crohn's disease, there is zero, nothing at this time we can do to cure you. We can give you uh, very powerful oral medicines with side effects that hopefully um, stop the progression of the disease. Um, if those don't work, we elevate and we give you a biologic. So these are injectable uh, monoclonal antibodies. You've seen commercials for it if you live in the States. Uh, but these medicines are very expensive, thousands and thousands of dollars a month. They put you at risk of immunosuppression, so developing a life-threatening serious infection that if you weren't on this medicine, you wouldn't otherwise get. Okay, so there's good reason to avoid these, although they are also extremely helpful medicines. Now, cannabis seems to help people with IB, IBD. And uh, this is this is commonly reported if you look at the existing literature. The majority of patients who consume cannabis say that it helps. However, it might be this distraction effect. It might be that it does suppress some of the pain and helps us sort of step outside of it and live our lives without dealing with it. But this can actually be a problem with Crohn's disease because if we're not paying attention to the symptoms of our Crohn's disease and we're, we're numbing them or we're, we're ignoring them with, with weed, um, what can happen is that the disease can progress. And the problem with Crohn's disease is as it progresses, it gets increasingly worse. And there's not a lot of turning back the hands of time. So the concern is that patients are palliating with THC, maybe not getting the other treatments, and their disease is actually worsening while they palliate their pain. And there's been this, this concern has been raised multiple times in the literature and even by gastroenterologists that I've worked with. Um, so it's interesting. We don't have all the answers. Cannabis is a tool, but it's not necessarily always the solution or at least not THC. That's really interesting. Just yesterday, I was exploring some of my own relationship with uh, non-attachment and kind of coming upon this realization that maybe some of the, my domains in which I've practiced non-attachment may have led to dissociation, disassociation. Hmm. Right, and there's a difference between being non-attached to something like pain, where you the, its its existence is still acknowledged and and recognized, uh, but your relationship to it is is different. Whereas disassociation is kind of like the the resistance or ignorance to existence, and that is a a little line there. So, like THC may help to guide us into a place that is. Um, less attached to what is occurring but there would be almost like a biphasic line with that where you could go into i've disassociated from what's occurring i like that yeah yeah so if we use cannabis mindfully it's a tool for detachment but if we just blast it right if we just we just keep blazing um then then i could see how it's a tool for disassociation and we see this that's a that's in itself is a therapy if you have post-traumatic stress disorder it's uncontrolled you're getting help it's still bad you can't sleep you're waking up you're screaming you want to disassociate those individuals are not necessarily trying to detach and sort of look back at those emotions. Although hopefully with time, with the help of therapy, plant medicine, maybe some psychedelics, then we can get to that just simple detachment that can still be part of us. But oftentimes people who are dealing with PTSD are aiming to dissociate. All right, and this, so this comes back to the, the vast variability between individuals, their current state of health, their desired state of health, and the practice that we engage in to bridge that gap from where we are to where we intend to be. And I think, uh, you know, a couple of good questions that 
my buddy Tommy and I ask each other is, hey, bud, what's your state of mind? And it, it offers me a moment to go, hmm, what is my state of mind? What is occurring within this space? And then you'll follow up, what is your intended state of mind? And between those two, that is where the practice comes in, is how you travel from where you are to where you intend to be and the range of behaviors and cognitive practices that we engage in to allow that to occur becoming the technicians of our own energy and you know cannabis may or may not be intertwined with that modulatory process certainly not in the morning for me um because it will absolutely impair my functionality that's another question i have as well about um why thc use in the morning can be so much more potent than to talk later in the day Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I, this like reinstating that aspect of intentionality when it comes to your medicine, discerning where you are at now will allow you to clarify where you want to be. And that will inform what you may do to get there. Mm-hmm. I love that approach. And, and actually, I, I recommend this for all drug use uh, is is what particularly um you know, not sort of the non-psychoactive, any psychotropic uh, medicine, whether it be, you know, something like cannabis all the way up to gamut to something like like cocaine is, is the question that the, the consumer must ask is, what am I aiming to gain from this consumption? And and if you can't answer that, I don't I don't think that you really want to be consuming. You're now bored. You're now, you're now just trying to get out of your headspace. Now, if you can answer and say, oh, I really want to get out of my headspace. No, that's, that's a different answer. But if you say, I don't know, I just want to, I like it. I, I would challenge that individual to, to think about what they really want. And are you, are you really in, engaging with this substance? Or are you using it to, like you said, dissociate? Is it, just, is it just a distraction from whatever it is that you don't want to be doing? And if that's the case, if you can acknowledge that, then go for it. You, you're, you're a sentient adult. Do, do, it, do what it is that you want to do, but at least know why you're doing it. Mm, yes. It's, you know, being honest with yourself as well. When we ask these questions, it is not so that we get an answer and then judge it. It is just so that we can clarify why it is we are using this and become more aware of what is the driving force behind our motivations. If we ask ourselves, why do I want to use this? And the answer comes up, well, I want to have fun. It's like, okay, then if that is your intention, clarify that intention. And if we clarify that intention, maybe it will actually be fun. Maybe you will be called to go and do something with this. Maybe you want to express yourself create creatively. Maybe you want to go outside and be amongst nature and, and harmonize with existence. But if we clarify this intention, no matter what it is, we give ourselves a greater capacity to actually allow that intention to unfold Whereas if we don't give ourselves even just the briefest of moments to say, hey, bud, what are you doing? Then we don't give ourselves that opportunity for the growth that can occur even in the things that we habitually do all the time. Totally. I, I think that's great. And speaking of habitually, you know, I think the same can be said around morning consumption of cannabis. I'm, I'm uh, no stranger to the wake and bake and, uh, and I'm not even uh, against it. but the effects of THC on the body physiologically are very different in the morning. And this is simply because we all have a circadian rhythm 
right? We've heard this many times. We got a rhythm, we go to bed, we wake up at a certain time. Um, and it's actually this rhythm that makes things like melatonin a medicine. Melatonin sort of hits the reset on this rhythm. And that's why we take it before bed. And then we hopefully wake up and we're uh, bright eyed, bushy tailed and, and on schedule, so to speak. Now, everything on planet Earth has a circadian rhythm based on 24 hours. But if we lived on Jupiter, our rhythm would be vastly different. But we're here on earth as far as I remember. And so a 24 hour cycle is what we naturally function on. We evolved this way and that has to do with the sun. So in the morning, as the sun comes up, we can look at the hormones inside of humans and we see all of these hormones throughout the day changing. Some are high in the morning and really low at night. Others like melatonin, which is a, a hormone, is really low in the morning, has a little peak in the day, and then it comes back up late at night. So we have this rhythm inside of us. And it turns out that the endocannabinoid system is critical to this rhythm. So in the morning, well, so as you might know, THC can be super helpful for sort of turning off stress. I'm super stressed. I, I blaze. All of a sudden, I decrease that stress response. That's because the endocannabinoid system is the counterbalance to your cortisol system, your stress system. So your body, when it's stressed, let's say you're being scolded. Let's say you're being threatened. Your body has epinephrine, the fight or flight molecule, but it also has cortisol. And cortisol is the stress hormone. It's highest in the morning. We know this. This is why people who have high blood pressure have highest blood pressure in the morning. This is why individuals who have anxiety oftentimes find themselves with anxiety in the morning. Lots of things. THC interferes with that rhythm. Not necessarily in a bad way. Maybe we want to interfere with it, but it, it absolutely hijacks the endocannabinoid system's normal role at regulating those hormones through the day and then has an action. It just so happens that it's the ECS because it's turning off the cortisol and the cortisol is highest in the morning. The ECS is also very active in the morning. So you have more receptors, you have more abundant uh, things, uh, targets for the THC in the morning. And therefore the effects are quite different of a wake and bake than they are an end of the day bake. And then last point would be when we wake and bake and we stimulate those receptors when they're at their highest, we're really throughout the rest of the day, unless you take the whole day off, likely going to get diminishing returns with your cannabis. And by the end of the day, uh, a lot of stoners will tell you they don't even, they're not, they're not feeling it. They might need to jump to concentrates or something before bed because they just don't get high anymore. Okay. Very interesting. So the ECS as this uh, counterbalance to cortisol, where does, you know, GABA come into play with that as this inhibitory neuromodulator and where does the ECS come into play with that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm following you. So, so GABA is a, a chemical that, that isn't sort of uh, it's a neurotransmitter, not a hormone. So it doesn't really follow the, the, the rhythms quite in the same way, although we do have different actions. Um, so, GABA is how THC tends to have its sedating effects. So sort of lower doses might have a little bit of a stimulating effect, but if you push the dose of THC, we almost always get a, a bit of sedation. And that's because uh, we get a release of GABA when we activate the CB receptors in our brain with THC. So you turn off the cortisol response, which is supposed to fuel us throughout the day, and you turn up the volume on the GABA, and now all of a sudden it's one o'clock, Pam, and you need a nap, dog. Yeah. <laughs> you hear the grunt there? That's it. That's confirmation. 
So I'm trying to wrap my head around this. THC increases production of GABA? Oh, dude, you're getting into complex pharmacology. The master homeostatic regulatory system touches all of the neurotransmitters. Our brain, super complicated, right? Complex structure. And THC has variable effects at different doses. So it's really complicated. But generally, we can say that THC causes a release of GABA on the GABAminergic neurons. And that GABAminergic re uh, release is actually what secondarily releases dopamine. And that's why weed sort of makes you feel good and carries some abuse potential. It can be addicting because as it releases the GABA, the inhibitory neurotransmitter, that tells the dopamine system that feels good. Uh, THC does not directly act on the dopamine system. Interestingly enough, it has this secondary effect. Okay. So, you know, we've discussed many different, um, you know, kind of a, a, a analogies for what the endocannabinoid system is, a conductor of a symphony, janitor in a hotel complex. Uh, with where your mind is at in relation to this endocannabinoid system, what could you use to describe what the system is and how it plays a role? Because you know where it is it's 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 omnipresent but it's kind of very sneaky and it seems to work almost a little bit in reverse to regular synaptic transmission and it kind of is like this almost like a bouncer you're like no or double no which is yes <laughs> so feedback this is inherently what this system does it, it helps us so i like to say master regulatory system or master homeostatic regulator so everywhere in all the cell types unlike your nervous system which is just the neurons unlike your gastrointestinal tract which is just the gi tract unlike your uh muscular skeletal system which is sort of a, everywhere almost right but the ecs receptors and and the machinery to produce endocannabinoids is in all of those places it's in every single major organ and almost every single cell type in your body, although not everyone. So it is, it's not about like a bodily system. It's a cellular system and it's, and it's preserved through uh, almost all complex life. It's 600 million years old and, and it's been found in animals as primitive as sea squirts. It's also based on the the messages sent through lipid signals okay so it's master homeostatic regulator using lipids fats in our diet that that functionality using fats to to maintain balance is not just a human thing it's every vertebrate on earth and frankly even the insects are doing things like this but they're not using cannabinoid one and cannabinoid two receptors so this system is a sensory system helping us adapt to the dynamic life here on earth it does everything and it just so happens that when we take thc this particular plant or this particular molecule from this particular plant that it has sort of this this action these multiple actions on the system but still that's only sort of a microcosm of the system this is a vast cellular communication system and thc is just one plant molecule your body produces 20 plus endocannabinoids not just anandamide and 2-ag your body has potentially dozens of targets for these endocannabinoids in the body and it's not just about what thc does at cb1 receptors so i can't tell you 
exactly how, uh, what the ECS does because we're still learning about all the roles it has, but it, it appears to be involved in basically everything that we call life. Uh, it's, it's pretty miraculous and it is, I think omnipresent is a good word. It's in all of our cells and it's absolutely playing feedback, helping us respond to the emotions, to the stimuli, to the environment that we're in, and then helping us to transcribe that information and react. Mm. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful yeah. way to say it because there's, there's no simple way to describe the system and, and, you know, do it justice. But I think that we're getting pretty close. You're getting pretty close. You're doing amazing work. Now I'm conscious that you have to be in the hospital soon. True. Um, would you like to tell us about your projects at Kenigma right now? What are you working on? Where can people find you? Absolutely. So we're doing a couple of cool things at the Kenigma right now. We're doing uh, product research. So we're, we're teaming up with, with brands to do uh, sort of, let's call it uh, consumer research. So we, you sign up for our, our initiative. We send uh, the, the producer sends you a free product. We've collaborated with More Better, who makes the relief app to do some tracking around how that product is making you feel, how it's affecting you. And then we're sort of creating content around it. So keep a lookout for that at Kenigma.com. If you want to you wanna, uh, stay abreast, you can sign up for our email list and you'll absolutely get a blast explaining this. The other thing we're doing really cool at the Kenigma right now is we're about to drop our cultivation guide. So I went on a personal journey and it's been like ugh, way too long, but took us taking us almost 18 months. Cause you know how the, the world works nowadays. Uh, but we finally are on our last step to put together an ebook. It's about a hundred pages. We did 10 original infographics trying to help break down this process. It was written by, uh, Stephen Philpott Jr., who's an amazing evolutionary biologist and, and uh, cannabis cultivator, getting his PhD in trichomology. Well, that's not technically oh. a PhD, but he is looking at trichomes with electron microscopes, which is which is wow. pretty interesting. Uh, and then Gianni, who's uh, actually our Australia-based uh, advisor, um, and he helped do, do a lot of this cultivation. So we got this really good book written by experts, not me. I'm not a cultivation expert, but I did start my journey alongside of this book. And I can tell you that the book's super helpful um, and it's going to be free. All you're going to have to do is sign up for the Kenigma email list and you're going to get all this wonderful information from uh, some of the brightest people I know in the space. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you uh, for that being free as well. That <laughs> is such a gift. It's I don't underestimate the amount of work that goes into that. It took way too long, actually. Uh, but, you know, a hundred page book period is a lot of work, but then put it in a specialty you're not good at. Right. You told me a hundred pages on the endocannabinoid system. I'm like, let me let me get typing. Uh, but this is <laughs> this is different. And I'm really happy with the way that it turned out. It's not perfect. It is not the grower's Bible. Uh, but it is a great place for anyone who's curious to know how to start. And what makes it unique, and this is my pitch and, and we can be done, is the first 20 pages were written by Stephen, the evolutionary biologist. And we don't talk about cannabis. We talk about plants. What is photosynthesis? What is transpiration and respiration? And why does it matter? Uh, something that a lot of people don't know, Cam. So you know what happens during uh, photosynthesis, right? We get 
not actually, I don't want to say right anymore. You know, correct. The uh, photo, the sun beams down, uh, providing energy. The plant absorbs CO2, carbon dioxide from the, the environment. And then it takes that and it creates sugar. So, super easy to understand. Everybody sort of gets it. All the green plants, good to go. But then when you start to talk about something called cellular respiration, how the plant breathes, you're like, oh, well, it absorbs CO2 and it releases oxygen, right? No, the plant yeah. actually also absorbs oxygen and releases uh, CO2. Uh, it's, it's not well understood, sorry, well recognized, but that's absolutely the case. But actually, it's not, that's not just happening in the leaves, in the aerial parts. The, the roots also respirate and the roots breathe oxygen, which is why you need to have the right soil. Cannabis can't grow in clay. There's no air in clay. So it needs the proper aerated soil. You need to have the right blend of perlite and, and coca coir and, and soil and organic matter and everything needs to sort of be perfect in those roots. It's actually this breathing that needs to happen in the roots, which makes overwatering such a, such a damning problem for, for plants. When you overwater, you're actually drowning the roots. They cannot breathe. Pretty interesting, right? Oh, that's fascinating. Yep. They breathe oxygen just like, just like the top of the plant. Wow. <laughs> I've... I mean, I've seen this plant kingdom breathe on mushrooms. It's kind of like I a agree. thing when <laughs> like, oh, the whole earth is breathing, dude. I can't believe I thought I was the only one. <laughs> and now I'm forgetting to breathe. <laughs> breathe, breathe. <laughs> That's so good and, and very true. And I, I explain that about psychedelics to people who are really curious. You know, this is why I say nature. I was like, you've got to get out there and just feel it. Like, there's no describing it. I can tell you the things are moving or the clouds are doing this until you feel it. it it's really a, kind of a mystery. Mm, bridging concept into experiential reality, being a citizen scientist and intrepid explorer of the realms that you inhabit, and downloading this ebook when it comes out, clicking on Kenigma, which is in the description below this podcast episode, thanking Cody for his big, beautiful brain and all of the wisdom that he shares with us. I love your brain. I love Thanks. you. Um, thank you so much for being here. And We'll do it again in maybe two years. Yeah, let's do it sooner next time. Uh, yeah. And once again, I did it at the beginning of the podcast. Thanks for helping, Cam. Appreciate it. Appreciate you, man. Peace. Peace.